I know I promised everybody Psalm 2 last week, um, but I'm going to disappoint you this morning if you read ahead. Uh, we, will, we will get to Psalm 2 next week, but uh, it became apparent to me as I readied myself to, to teach that passage that it is indelibly anchored to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, and as I was kind of thinking through it, I thought, man, I'm going to have to spend a lot of time explaining 2 Samuel 7 before I can even preach Psalm 2. And then I, it dawned on me. Why not just start by preaching 2 Samuel chapter 7? And so that's, that's what we're going to do this morning. And though I'm not always able to keep my promises, God is. And in fact, we have a promise of God in our text this morning. A very big promise of God. One that permeates all of the Bible. Some have called this section of 2 Samuel the ideological summit of the Old Testament. And indeed, it is an exceptional section of Scripture. And what we'll, what we'll find is that God makes a promise to David. And that he promises a king who will rule over all of his people for all of eternity. That's our main idea. God promises a king who will rule over his people forever. And the exhortation this morning, what I want to encourage you to do, is to worship the eternal resurrected king. Because what we'll find is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this particular promise. We'll go through the text in two parts. We'll talk about David's big idea, and then we'll look at God's better promise. Let's pray and we'll begin this morning. Father, we thank you that the gospel calls us to hope, not to hype. That we are called to believe, not make believe. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that Jesus, the Messiah, really did live, really did die, really did resurrect from the dead, really is ascended and is seated on the throne of David in heaven. We thank you that he really rules and reigns right now. We thank you that one day he really will return at his second advent to make everything sad untrue, to put an end to evil. Lord, this is good news. The Christmas season reminds us of its beginning, that indeed a child was born, given. Lord, we thank you that he began to establish his kingdom even then and that it continues to expand to this day. We look forward to the time when it will be fully established in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, you are good. We ask that you would help us to understand this wonderful passage this morning. Turn the water of my sermon into wine, we pray, that we might be satisfied as we hear what you would say to us through this text. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So since we haven't been studying 2 Samuel, we need to pour some contextual foundation. We're going to try to do it a little bit quickly, but sometimes I get caught up in details. So, uh, But we all are familiar kind of with the major um, turning points in Scripture. 
And so one is that God creates everything and then Adam and Eve sin, sin enters the world, it fractures everything, it breaks everything. And then in Genesis 12, God promises to Abraham, look, I am going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the peoples of the earth through you. And then we find Abraham's descendants are enslaved in Egypt, right? Y'all are with me to this point. We're in the book of Exodus. God then saves those people out of Egypt and calls them to himself. He calls Israel his son. And the charge given to God's people is that they are to represent God to the world. They're to be holy as he is holy. And that's the point of of the law in large part, to teach God's people what God is like and how they, as his people, are to live with royal manners, if you will. They're supposed to live as God would live. That's kind of where we're at in Leviticus, right? Learning how to be holy as God is holy. Well, the people, uh, they enter into this covenant with God. They, they promise to do all that God says. And God says, hey, if you do that, it's going to go well. If, it does, if you don't do those things, it's probably not going to go great. And they enter into the promised land in the book of Joshua. And, and eventually, and repeatedly throughout all of this, we find that God's people sin. Over and over again, they, they break the covenant. They do what they want instead of what God wants. This is the nature of sin, doing things our way instead of his way. And Judges, the book of Judges, gives us just a really excellent picture of what that looks like. We studied Judges year, years ago, and you might remember, uh, the people would be doing okay, and then they would plunge themselves into sin. They would do what the surrounding nations are doing. They would worship false gods and commit all kinds of terrible sin. God would bring judgment on them. Eventually, they would turn and repent and cry out to God. He would raise up a judge or a deliverer, at which point they would return to God, begin obeying him again, and then they would sin again. And it's just this vicious cycle. And there's a chorus in the book of Judges that we hear it throughout, and it actually ends the book of Judges. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel. And that brings us to Second Sam or to First Samuel. Well, it was just one book originally, but scrolls and such. Anyhow, First Samuel. And we find the people recognize their need for a king. The problem is, of course, they want a king for all the wrong reasons. They want a king so they can be like the nations. But still, God gives them a king. He has Samuel anoint Saul, and Saul. I mean, he fits the bill for what a king looks like. I mean, tall, dark, handsome, you know, all of it. He's, he's got it all. He looks the part of a king. The problem is his character is very flawed. Saul turns out to be selfish, incapable of acknowledging wrong, and a coward. In fact, Saul proves not to be much better than the people who were leading Israel in the time of the judges. It turns out that Saul, too, does what is right in his own eyes, even though he is the king of Israel. About midway through the book, Samuel delivers a word to Saul from God. which Basically, he says, Saul, you have been a terrible king. You have not done what I told you to do. Therefore, I'm going to remove the throne from you And I'm going to give it to another, a man who is after my own heart. That man, of course, is David. 
And in due course, David, we're into 2 Samuel now, David unites Israel under his rule. He takes the city of Jerusalem, names it Zion. It becomes the political capital of the Jewish people. And then in chapter 6, which comes immediately before our chapter, he brings the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, which, remember, this is at the very, typically kept at the very center of the tabernacle. It represents God's holy presence. It says his footstool, heaven, his kingdom. And so it's this idea is that this is where God and his presence are enthroned and localized. It's very, very holy. In fact, in the process of bringing this ark to Jerusalem to kind of set Jerusalem up as the religious center for the Israelites also, this guy reaches out and touches the ark to try to keep it from falling on the ground and God kills him for it because he's holy. Eventually, though, they bring the ark to Jerusalem with dancing and singing and cymbals and shouting, and David uh, dances in this ephod, and it is a great celebration. Things are going really, really well for the Israelites. They're going really, really well for King David. And so that is where we come in chapter 7 at the beginning. And this is what we find. Verse 1. When the king had settled into his palace... And the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. The king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I'm living in a cedar house, while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. So you can picture this scene. David and Nathan are sitting there on the roof of his new cedar home, sipping on some decaf coffee after dinner. The sun's kind of setting. David thinks, man, this is nice. He turns and looks at Nathan and says, Brother, have you ever seen that show Fixer Upper on HGTV? I think we should do something like that for the Lord our God and the Ark of the Covenant. Right After all, I have this great house, and what does it say to the rest of the nations when God is still you know, living in that dingy old tent? What does that communicate? After all, doesn't Deuteronomy 12, 10 through 11, you're the prophet, you tell me, doesn't it say something like, when you cross the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and he gives you rest, from all the enemies around you and you live in security, then the Lord your God will choose the place to have his name dwell. I have rest. I have a house. Maybe we should build God's temple, his permanent dwelling here now. But what do you think? And Nathan says, that sounds pretty good. That is a brilliant idea, David. Do everything that is on your heart. Let's get this renovation project, this building project, started. But, verse 4, That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house Instead, I've been moving around with tent as my dwelling. In all of my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant, David. 
This is what the Lord of armies, Lord of hosts, says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have destroyed all of your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure for, before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. So Nathan has to quickly double back to David and say, all of my affirmation that I gave you, forget it. I need to walk that back a little bit and put things on hold because God has appeared to me and he says that you were not to build him a house. That he is not going to have his name made great by you. But instead, you are going to have your name made great by him. He says, David, you, you aren't to build God a house. He's going to build you a house. And so we, we want, might want to ask, why isn't David allowed to build a house to the Lord? And I've got five reasons for you. Two are very quick and they come from other texts. But one is David's going to be occupied fighting, fighting wars, which the next chapter shows us as well as elsewhere in the scriptures. He's going to be occupied fighting. Secondly, God tells us that David has shed too much blood to build the temple. And so he is prohibited. Thirdly, God wants to make it clear that he is not like other gods. You see, typically, what would happen in ancient culture is somebody would come into power. And then they would build a big worship house or a temple for their God. And that big temple for their God would make their particular God famous. And then in response to being made famous, the God that they worshipped would bless their rule and reign. And so you see what's happening here. God is saying, this is not a quid pro quo situation. This is not a you scratch my back, I scratch your back kind of deal. I don't operate like that. See, I'm not like these other gods. You cannot earn my favor. You cannot earn my blessing. I simply give it to you because I want to. See, God's aseity means, his aseity is his self-existence and his self-sufficiency. 
It means that God doesn't need anything from anybody. God doesn't need your worship. God doesn't need your devotion. Is he pleased with it? Yes. Does he call you to it? Yes. Does he need it? Absolutely not. This means that God cannot be held ransom. It means that he cannot be manipulated. He cannot be put in anyone's debt. I did this for you, God, and so now now you need to, to pay me. You need to do your part. I did this, you do that. Quid pro quo. No. God doesn't need anybody. He doesn't, doesn't need David to build him a house. He says, I don't work like that. I bless my people because I want to. I've revealed myself to you because I wanted to. And this is the nature of grace. David doesn't deserve to be called out of the field shepherding sheep to become king of Israel. No. God does that because he chooses to. Because he wants to. David doesn't need to earn God's blessing in his life. God's going to bless David because he wants to. In fact, David doesn't doesn't deserve to, to be called king. He doesn't deserve to be taken from the field. What David deserves is the same thing that you and I deserve. Judgment. The wrath of God against our sin. And yet, God gives grace. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. And it's the very locus of the Christian message. What we believe as Christians is not that we are really good people and we come to church on Sundays and we do everything that the Lord tells us to do. We do want to do that. We do want to do what the Lord tells us. But that's not why, that's not why we're saved. We don't say, hey, because I've done these things, God then rescues me from my sin because he just thinks I'm swell and he's really impressed with my life. No, what we say is that we are dead in our sins. We love to be in rebellion against God. We want to do things our way rather than his way. We live in this kind of zombie-like existence. We're just dead. And then God brings us to life and gives us the gift of faith. He rescues us. It's as if you were dead at the bottom of the sea and God reaches his hand into the ocean and pulls you out. Puts oxygen into your lungs. and Turns your decaying flesh into new flesh. Makes us alive. Not because we've done anything. But by his grace. God operates according to grace. And his pleasure, not any action that we take. Our salvation, our right standing with God, the peace that we can have with God, the relationship you can have with God, is not on the basis of what you might do, but on the basis of your belief in what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus came and lived the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. He actually did earn the blessing of God. And then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. He took the curse of God that you and I deserve. 
so that when we put our faith in him, we get what's his blessing, eternal life, peace with God. Likewise here, God wants to make plain to David that he cannot earn his favor, that he's not like other gods. Indeed, in David's response in the second half of the chapter, which we're not going to have time to, to get to, David responds by sitting in awe before the Lord, struck with this gracious provision. God, how could you do this for me? This, this is amazing. I don't, I don't even have words. It doesn't make any sense. I don't deserve this. And he thanks God for his past faithfulness. He thanks him for his present faithfulness. And then he prays that God would do what God has said. And in the midst of that, he does make this proclamation in verse 22. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God beside you. As all we have heard confirms. There's no one like this God. He's self-existent, self-sufficient. And he blesses people, not because they're really good or they do all the right things, but because he is God and he is good and he is gracious. He wants to make it clear that he's not like other gods. Secondly, I guess fourthly, he wants to make it plain that he doesn't share his glory with anybody else. Look with me at verse 4 again. I guess verse 5. Go to my servant, David. A little reminder there of David's position. And say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I, will, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I've moved around in a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking... Why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make your name great, like that of the greatest on earth. You see, God takes the initiative. God leads and his people follow. God alone is God. And in the great purposes of the redemptive story, at every moment in redemptive history, at every single point, God takes the initiative. It's God's plan. So for example, when the Bible opens up, God speaks, and then things that don't exist spring into existence so that they might obey his word. Abraham doesn't just, you know, he isn't just walking along one day and have a great idea and say to God, God, you know what? I'm going to go to a land that's not my own. You can change my name from Abram to Abraham. Uh, we'll change my wife's name from Sarai to Sarah. Uh, and then you can bless us with a child when she's in like her 90s. And then that will be the child of promise. And from him, all the nations will be blessed. It's a great idea, Lord. No, God calls Abraham. Look at the life of Moses. Moses doesn't say, God, I have a great idea. Your people, they're in slavery you should use me and we'll go do 
some plagues to show your superiority over Egypt's gods, and then we'll lead them out. You can make a holy people, a holy nation. No, no, God calls Moses. It's true in David's life. David isn't out in the field. He doesn't go, you know what? I should be king of this whole deal. No. God calls David. I mean, do you remember? Like Samuel goes to his house and he's talking to his his daddy. They're they're making sacrifices and he knows he's supposed to anoint somebody from Jesse's family king. And and they parade all the sons of Jesse in front of him. And he's like, "Ah, it's not not this one. Not this one. Not that one. That's the last one. Are you sure all of your sons are here? And Jesse's like, where's David? He's out with the sheep. Bring him here. And it turns out it's David. Like that's how he was, he became the king of Israel. It wasn't on his own initiative or his own action. It was because God did it. You see God reminding him of that. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people. I am the one that was with you wherever you've gone. I am the one who has destroyed your enemies before you. What you see is that God is the one who is going to get glory for these actions in redemptive history. God is not going to share his glory with David. He is the one who will initiate and carry out his plan. I think this shows us that we can have really good intentions to do something for the Lord. Have a good endeavor in mind. And it might not be what God wants for us to do. And you and I, you know, we don't have the prophet Nathan, but sometimes circumstances and biblical truth and friends, God will use them to providentially reroute our lives in a different direction than we thought we should have gone. I always, I always think when I'm thinking in this vein of my friends who were in China as missionaries for three years, they had gone to China with the intention to stay there forever. And in fact, their first three years living in the city was to train them so they could go out in the country and start like living where they were planning on living. But through various circumstances and health concerns of one of my friends, they were unable to remain in that task. They had to come back stateside. He said, oh, that's great, great idea. I, wanna, I want to be a missionary, and I believe they were supposed to be there for those three years. But I want to stay here forever for you, Lord my God. That's a great posture. It's a great heart. And then God says, that's not what I have for you. I wonder, have you ever had an experience like that? This is what I'm supposed to do. I know I'm going to go do it. And then God, through people, circumstances, his word, takes you and shifts you. So that's, that's, a, that's a fine idea. But that's not what I have planned for you. God providentially reroutes our lives sometimes because Truth be told, we're imperfect at discerning what God's will is. I mean, of course, there are things in the scripture that are very plain to us. We can see what God is like and what we ought to do, how we ought to live, right? We should only worship one God. We shouldn't bow down to idols. We shouldn't swear falsely. And yet, and yet, we don't have all the answers. We don't open the Bible and find, where should I go to college? You know, it jumps out. UVA, Virginia Tech. Don't go to college, go to trade school. 
No, we have to use our wisdom and then eventually act and do something. And God in his graciousness, he makes sure we get to where he wants us to go. Our plans are not synonymous with God's plans. Our plans are not always the same as God's plans. But here's the good news. God's plans are always better than any plan we might have in mind. And his plans always come to pass. There's really good news for the, the worriers and the control freaks among us. Because it means that, that I, am, I can be free of bitterness and worry. Right? Bitterness means that I look back over the course of my life and I see something that happened and I went, God just got it wrong there and I'm mad about it. No, no, no. God got it right. Worrying is you look to the future and you start freaking out. God is going to get this wrong. If he knew what I knew, he would do things different and he would do it how I think it should happen. No, he's not, not going to get it wrong. Bitterness and worry, they go out the window when we recognize that God is sovereign, that he is providentially controlling all things, that he is the ruler of the universe, that he's sovereign and that he is for us. If you are in Christ, God is for you. It's that wonderful promise of Romans 8.28. He's working all things together according to his will for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign and he is for us. That means when things start going sideways in our lives from our perspective, we can take a deep breath and relax. And remember that the trains are running right on schedule from God's perspective. That our responsibility is to simply trust him. Even if we don't understand all the details. His purposes ultimately come to pass in his plans. This is something that I think is really helpful and pointed out in Philippians 4. This is one of my favorite verses. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God, that part with which surpasses all human understanding, I love to just read it this way. And the peace of God, which is better than human planning, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, God is sovereign and he's for you. And so even when you have a really good idea and it doesn't seem to work out the way you think, you can be hopeful and happy knowing that God is behind the scenes working and things are unfolding according to his good and perfect plan. And David learns here that not everything from heaven has his name on it. Yes, God is going to have a house built for himself. Solomon's going to do it just a generation later. But that's not the task he has for David. He's not going to share this particular glory with David by allowing David to take the initiative on the project. And so he reroutes him. He says, I don't have that for you, but what I have for you is something better. He says, I am going to make a house for you. I just love this. It's kind of, it's a pun, right? David's like, I'm going to build you a house. And God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty, right? It's the highest form of humor, y'all. Love puns. 
But you see what's going on. I'm going to build a dynasty for you. Look at this promise. It's extraordinary. The Lord himself will make a house for you, verse 12. When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, when you die, just, I've thought about this a lot this week and we just don't have much time to talk about it, but just God planned for David's death. And as I thought about someone, God has planned for my death. He's planned for your death. This is incredible. He plans for David's days. After you are dead, my plan continues. My promise continues. I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And so this, this promise is going to echo on into eternity. It has eternal ramifications. Your house and kingdom will endure forever. Your throne will be established forever. And even though your progeny might sin against me, I am not going to forsake them. I'm not going to take my love from them in the same way that I took it from Saul. There will be sin, right? When? When he does wrong? When your children do wrong, I'm going to discipline them. Nations might rise up against your nation. Afflictions might come. But I'm never going to cut them off in the same way that I cut off Saul's descendants. There will always be a Davidic heir. This first part of verse 14 is really interesting. God says, I will be his father and he will be my son. And we have to think about this a little bit to get it clear in our minds, especially as uh, Americans in the 21st century. Uh, sonship typically just carries the weight of uh, genealogy and, and, and biology, you know, um, get onto ancestry.com and figure out from whom you're descended. Uh, was it, I heard one this morning, what, 23andMe, you know, send in your DNA in the mail and they'll come back and tell you all the different ancestors that you have. That's how we think about it. But in the Bible, uh, the concept is a little bit, a little bit broader than ours. And it, it's really tied intimately, not just to biology, but to work and family and identity. And so to be a son of somebody is to be like them, right? Like father, like son. So if your father, but before we had the advent of the modern workplace, if your father was a baker, you were a baker. If your father was a cobbler, you were a cobbler. If your father was a farmer, you were a farmer. Just not a whole lot of choice. It's what you did. And so like father, like son. This is the way it was in the Bible. There's a, there's a phrase, um, Son of Belial, you'll hear it from time to time in the Bible. It means son of worthlessness. And what the authors are saying when they call someone a son of Belial is not that his dad was Mr. Worthless and his mother was Mrs. Worthless and they are the worthless family. No. They say this person's character is such that they must belong to the sons of worthlessness. They're worthless because of their character. It's a description or a category of function rather than of biology. 
I mean, the same thing happens when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. He's not saying this is how you become a Christian. He's saying those who make peace are like the one who is the supreme peacemaker, God who makes peace. So when you are a peacemaker, insofar as you make peace, you are like God. You're acting in a way that is godly. You could be called a son of God. Follow me here? This is the same thing in John 8. Uh, he has um, some Jewish folks that have, have risen up, and, and he says, they're having this kind of banter back and forth, and Jesus says to them, uh, I, I, I don't remember his exact words, but he's saying, I am from God, and if you want to see God, look at me. I, I'm the way to God. And the, the Jews in response, they say, what? That doesn't make any sense. And he, and he says, if you abide in my word, you abide in me, you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. To which they respond, we've never been enslaved to anybody. We, we are children of Abraham. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, that, that can't be. You can't be children of Abraham. Because I come from God. And I know God. And if you knew God, if you were true children of Abraham, then you would know me. And he turns to them and he says, let me tell you who your daddy really is. He says, you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you're trying to kill me. He's the father of lies, and you're lying just like him. As you can see how this category of sonship can be one of function. Today, uh, we might say someone is a son of a gun. Or something like that. We're not talking about biological descent. We're talking about function. So too in this passage. When the king or the descendant of David is enthroned, he is to become a son of God. He is to rule and reign as a representative of the people and of God. His rule is to express the goodness and the benevolence and the kindness of the Lord his God. And that's what it means when somebody is raised up and it says, I will be his father and he will be my son. It's going to function in a godly way before the people. And that leads us obviously to this question, who is this king going to be? And of course, it's Solomon, Right? After David dies, Solomon builds this glorious, splendid temple. It's right there in 13. He's the one who will build a house for my name. He builds it, and it's wonderful. But if you know your history here, you know that Solomon does plenty of wicked things. And his sons, upon his death, plunge the nation into a civil war. And there's splits. There's a northern kingdom called Israel. There's a southern kingdom called Judah. And no dynasties ever established in the north, just one king after another. And then in the south, in Judah, there's a Davidic king for a while. But, but eventually, just three centuries after this promise has been made, in 587 BC, the Babylonians come and they destroy everything. And David has descendants, but they never again regain the throne. Right? Ezra and Nehemiah come and they, they rebuild a pitiful version of the temple. 
and people cry after it's done because it's not nearly as glorious as the first. Still, no Davidic king. And so you go, has, did this promise fail? What's, what's going on here? Because the promise has to be fulfilled in one of two ways. Just descendants in perpetuity, right? Uh, one of David's uh, children rises to the throne, rules, dies. The next of David's children rises to the throne, rules, dies, so on and so forth. But there's a second way that this prophecy can be fulfilled. That one of David's progeny lives and reigns forever. And in light of the the judgment that comes on Israel because of the wickedness of some of David's sons, the prophets, well, they understand this. They're going to teach the people this. This is why messianic expectation kind of goes up and up and up. There, gets a, there becomes a bigger picture of who this God is and what he's doing in the history of his people. Isaiah makes this plain. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. Now, you've probably heard this read every Christmas. You just heard it read a little bit ago. But listen now for the echoes of this promise given to David. And the government, the kingdom, will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Again, this is language to convey kingship. Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. Listen, he will reign, where? On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So Isaiah writes that at a time when there's turmoil. Still, centuries go by and there's no king seated on David's throne. And then you come to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and little Jesus and Johnny Christ. It's a title. It means Messiah. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you hear the thunderous claim that Matthew is making as he opens his gospel? The king who was promised has come. This is his genealogy. This is his story. And he's better than we ever imagined. Luke picks up on this too in Luke 1. As the angel announces this whole deal to Mary. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will name him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see, Jesus is ultimately this promised son of David who's going to rule on the throne and establish his kingdom and bring great prosperity and blessing to his people. And it turns out his people are not just those who are biologically descended from Abraham. 
No, it's those who act like Abraham and put their faith in the promises of God. That's who is in this kingdom. Those who repent and believe in the king. This is an incredible promise. And yes, you go, short term, this was fulfilled in Solomon. And ultimately, it's fulfilled in Christ. Sometimes prophecy, oftentimes prophecy, works like a mountain range. You look at it from far away and the peaks look right next to each other and then you, you get up close to it and on top of one of the peaks even, you go, oh, that's a few miles that way. As you can see, Solomon fulfilled short term, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the true son of God, both in terms of his messianic function and in his metaphysical relationship with the Father and the Spirit. And that's what, that's what Christmas is all about. The the people had been waiting for this promise that was going to change their reality, was going to bless the whole earth, and waiting and waiting and waiting, and then there's the baby. There's the child who was born. It goes beyond, like, have you ever thought about how incredible this is? It's not just that God gives us a king to rule forever. It's that God himself, God the Son, takes on flesh becomes incarnated. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas is the incarnation, right? You can say to people, Mary, incarnation of the Lord God Jesus Christ who sits on the throne of David forever. I don't know, you can try that. But that's what we're celebrating here. It's that God became a man to rule over his people, yes, but also to make that rule possible by dying for his people. Jesus comes at Christmas, and Christmas doesn't have much meaning apart from the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's born so that he can die. He becomes man so that he can perfectly fulfill the covenant on behalf of men. He becomes a man so that he can die a substitutionary death in the place of sinners, in the place of all who would turn from their sin and call out to him in faith. And he rises from the dead to prove his power and his person. To prove that the sacrifice he made was satisfactory. Was able to actually bring peace between God and man. He rules in heaven from the throne of David right now. Patiently waiting to return and make everything sad and true. Friend, if you are not a Christian, if your life is not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, I implore you during this Christmas season to turn from your sin and trust Jesus. Because you will die. You will face judgment. And only faith in Christ has the power to save you from your sin. To save you from that right judgment of God. Indeed, at Christmas, we celebrate this wonderful reality that God became a man, died in our place so that we might be forgiven of our sins, rose from the dead so that we might be free from death. Indeed, we sing with the angels, hark the herald, the angels sing glory to the newborn king. We sing glory to our king. Jesus 
is the king that has been waited on since this promise was made to David. Praise God he has come. Jesus is the king and his is the name at which every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that they never fail or falter. Thank you that your will is always accomplished. Thank you that you always get all the glory. Thank you that you are not like false gods, that there's no one like you. Thank you that you are a good God, that you are gracious to us, and that you bless us, not because we're really good people, but because you are a really good God. And you have chosen to save us from the death that we have plunged ourselves into. Lord, we praise you that into darkness has come a great light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.